welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on March 9, 2019 at Provincetown Theatre in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was No Coincidence. a great way to kick off the evening tonight would be to introduce to you a guest storyteller that we have here tonight who's an occasional sometimes mosquito co-producer and uh, notorious storyteller here tonight um, Jerry Riley so let's bring Jerry up to the stage thank you this is great full house I love it um, so I want to tell you a story about 10 years ago, uh, me and my family, we moved to Newton, to a place called Upper Falls. It's a funny little corner of Newton. It's like an old mill village, 1800s, there was a mill there in the river. And we moved in, and the best thing about this place, the thing I got all excited about is one block from our house, there's this incredible park. It's called Hemlock Gorge and uh, Echo Bridge. And at this gorge, the Charles River uh, goes over a huge dam, it's very dramatic, and then through a gorge, and there's an island, and it's uh, uh, this is massive footbridge, echo bridge that goes over the whole thing, and it's this compact little park that's got all this cool stuff in it. But that first weekend when we were there, and I was with my daughter, she was going into first grade, and we were exploring the park, and we are wandering around, and there was a funny little thing we came across. So I said the river goes over this huge dam where the mill was, and then it goes through the gorge, and then 90% of the river goes straight ahead and, you know, and on down to Boston. But a little sliver of the river, maybe 10% of the water, gets channeled off over here, and it goes over this funny little thing that's only about eight feet wide and about this high, this other little dam, and then the water goes under the highway and then joins the main river. So it's kind of like, what is the point of that thing? I don't really know. But it must be, you know, history. It must have been back then it was for something. But we noticed this little dam um, where the water kind of went over, it had a leak in it. It was old and it was crumbly. And water, there was like a jet of water, you know, coming through the middle of the wall and, uh, you know, leaking out. And it's kind of, oh, all right, just curiosity. Anyway, I mentioned my daughter was going into first grade. So uh, this is all new to me. In the morning, I'm going to take take her to the bus stop and put her on the school bus, and so I do. And then uh, every morning it becomes my routine. I take her to the school bus and then I go for a walk and I get a cup of coffee and I go you know, around the neighborhood and back home and it's like 20 minute walk. So one day, I don't know, a week or two into this, uh, it's trash day and I'm going on my walk, I'm coming down the street and I go past somebody's trash pile and there's the trash bin and next to it is a four foot high, yeah, about that big uh, Barbie doll. And I thought, oh, my daughter, she'll probably love this. So I grabbed this big Barbie, and I walked down the street, and I come home, you know? And it's a little grubby and whatever, but it's a four-foot-high Barbie. I think this is pretty good. <laughs> so my daughter comes home from school, and like, hey, look what I got for you. And she is, like, freaked out. Like, get that thing away from me. She's appalled. She wants nothing to do with it. So I stick four-foot-high Barbie out in the shed, and I forget about it. So a week goes by, and in the news, there's this big story Memphis is is underwater. The Mississippi River is overflowed. There's a huge flooding down in the south, down in, uh, in in Memphis. All of a sudden, I get this idea. I go and I get giant Barbie, 
and I clean her up a little bit, and I, uh, and I put a big pink rubber glove on her. And, uh, and then I, I, I bring her down to this dam down there with the leak in it. And I, and I, and I po pose Barbie with her, her finger in the hole where the water is coming out of the dam, you know? And I snap all these pictures. So I take the picture and I send it to the Newton tab, the local newspaper, and to all my friends, just for their entertainment. And uh, it's a, you know, subject line, she's got our back. And said, uh, while Memphis, you know, uh, Memphis sinks under the waves of the Mississippi, here in Upper Falls, giant Barbie has our back. Uh, quick thinking Barbie was walking through Hemlock Gorge, saw the leaking dam, and plugged it with her finger. She said, like, is anybody ever going to come? I'm really getting tired. So anyway, I send this off to Newton Tab. I get nothing. Nothing comes back. So the next day, I send another one. Shocked. We are absolutely shocked and appalled. Uh, Giant Barbie has been in Hemlock Gorge for 24 hours waiting for reinforcements. And the Newton Tab uh, you know, hasn't published a word about this. Uh, yet, you know, dem democracy and all that's great, but we're talking Giant Barbie here. Um, you know, what about the fourth estate? What about uh, the, the public's right to know? We need a story, you know, <laughs> nothing. So the next day, uh, we get down there and giant Barbie's gone. So we send another thing to the Newton tab. Gone but not forgotten. Uh, Tuesday morning, giant Barbie uh, uh, saw the leak in the dam, plugged the, you know, the thing and, uh, and rescued uh, Upper Falls. Uh, this morning it was found she was missing. Uh, rumors spread in this tight-knit village. Um, some people think maybe she ended up in a landfill. Other people think maybe she's in some little girl's toy room. Uh, but Upper Falls citizen Mari Jackson said she'd like to believe that she was swept out in the river and out to sea and has landed on the beach in some other community where, you know, she will be, uh, 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 saving the day there. So this goes off. And finally, finally, we get a response. We spoke to Ken and he had no comments. <laughs> <laughs> that was all we got back. So about a month later, all of a sudden, these huge trucks show up and this massive construction project begins. They, they dig up, they block off this chunk of the river, they divert the river, they start digging, and they, they dig down like 30 feet down into the river, and they replace, it takes about nine months, it probably costs $20 million, they replace this dam with a brand new, much more elaborate dam that, as far as I can see, still doesn't have any purpose. So at the end of this, all these friends of mine are saying, is that a coincidence? Did the Barbie thing? Did they just go rebuild this thing because of the Barbie? And said, beats me. So in my neighborhood, you ask anybody, everybody will tell you, Jerry Riley, you know, got that damn bill. Jerry and Barbie. And that's my story. So. Okay, give a big round of applause to the first storyteller. It's hard to get up first. Let's give an applause for Frank. All right, I'm as nervous as a virgin at a mosquito slam. So, <laughs> be gentle. 
All right, true story. I'm coming home to Boston from here, and I'm on 93, and we come out of the exit towards the north end. I just got off the phone with my friends, and we were just about to meet, and then wham, someone T-bones my car. My car goes spinning around, and all I could see is policemen running towards me. Thank you, Jesus. Policemen running towards me. Thank you, Jesus. And I slammed into Thank You, Jesus, which was a, a cab company. Is that <laughs> so I go head on with Thank You, Jesus. So the police take me out of the car, and I'm just stunned. And they, we pry the other guy out of the cab, and he's just stunned. And the woman that caused the accident, she just looks at me, and she goes, what did you do? And I said, what did I do? And the policeman said, lady, you took a left in the middle lane. What are you trying to do? She, she said, my GPS told me to take a left. <laughs> so the cop went, what? So she said, my GPS told me to take a left. So we looked at each other, and the cop looks at me, and he goes, go ahead. And I said, you motherfucker. <laughs> I just went on and on and on and on. Her daughter then runs out of the car, hugs me, and says, we're so sorry, we're so sorry that my mother destroyed all these cars. I looked at the cop, and I said, I hope you're getting this down. <laughs> so anyway, so in the meantime, the people that was, I was supposed to meet pull up, and by no coincidence, they pull up and they start taking everything out of my car. I didn't know what the freak was happening. So they take everything out of my car. My car, with thank you Jesus, goes up on the, um, the uh, tow thing. <laughs> and um, and I, was a, I was a wreck because I, I'm saying goodbye to my car. I'm saying goodbye to my baby. But then I thought, they'll fix it, they'll fix it. So a few days later go by and I'm thinking, I have stuff still in my car. So. Paul and I go to my car, we, we had to get all these police forms and everything, take everything out, go back home. A Couple of days later, the insurance company tells me that my car has been totaled, and I'm like, oh shit. So they said, you have to get out your, you have to get your license plates and whatever. So I go back to the tow lot, now it's about seven o'clock at night, pitch black, water main break in the tow lot. So the water was about up to here, and I had a little tiny Nissan Sentra, which was down to there. And so I told the guys, I said, I can't get through the street. The guy goes, ah, you'll be able to get through. Don't, no, what, the water won't get into your car. I'm like, you're, you're freaking nuts. So I said, what is there, is there another way to get to my car? Well, you know, and then I said, you know, I gotta get my plates. So he says to me, do you have a screwdriver? And I said, do I have a screwdriver? I'm at the tow lot and you're asking me if I have a screwdriver? So I said, no, I don't have a screwdriver. So anyway, he goes, go down that back alley. You'll see a fence. It's a big white fence with a big hole in it. Go through the hole and find your car. And I'm like, shitting me. So I go down this dark, dark alley. I find this hole in the middle of a fence, go through the hole, and there's a flatbed truck, like right here. So I, I'm not young, and I had to climb up this flatbed truck, and then onto another flatbed truck, and another flatbed truck, and another flatbed truck. And then I finally see ground, I jump down, and I'm ankle deep in mud. So in the meantime, I'm trying to walk, 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 and my shoes are popping off me. And so finally I hear this noise, and because they, they did say a mechanic should be behind there. So I, 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 I turn the corner, and there's this six foot two, God with a screwdriver in each hand. <laughs> so I said, you gotta help me. Thank you, Jesus, you gotta help me. <laughs> so he helped me take the plates off and this and that. And so I finally said to him, how do I get back? And he said, how'd you get here? And I told him the story and he handed me the plates. It said, good luck, Bell. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> That's it. <laughs> Let me pull the next name. Fresh meat. Oh, Jody J, come on up here. Okay, uh, so I don't ever like to spend money on myself. It's a real uh, downfall of mine, um, but I will take everyone out to dinner. Um, I've got plenty of money in the bank, and I just, you know, it just sits there. And um, and so when I first got here, I um, I started doing property management, and I have this amazing client. And one of the jobs that I did for her was drive her cars around. She had two vehicles that sat on her property, and she lived primarily in California. And so I'm thinking, okay, this isn't a bad gig. I look at the house, I take care of cleaning and whatever else, and I drive these two cars around every week. And she pays me really good money to do this. And so um, a couple years down the line, I've been doing this for a couple years, and um, now I drive a 97 Honda that I've had since 2003. I bought it from a friend of mine, 1,500 bucks. It has almost 300,000 miles on it and she purrs like a kitten. But she started to, you know, need some maintenance, and it turns out that it needed a, a fuel tank, and so it was gonna be in the shop for a while. And so I said to her, I said, would it be okay if I just used one of the vehicles so that I can get around? She's like, fine, whatever you wanna do, I trust you, take whichever one you want. Now she had a Saab and she had a Honda, and I was much more comfortable in the Honda because I've always driven Hondas, and so I said, well, I'll use the Honda for a little bit. I'll have it for like maybe four days. And she says to me, no, 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 I want you to have the Honda. Take the Honda. And I'm thinking, I don't receive well. <laughs> and I'm like, you want me to have it? Like, am I buying it? She's like, no, I want to gift it to you. I'm going to sell it to you for a dollar. Now, now I'm thinking I'm really fancy because now it's a 99 Honda. <laughs> and <laughs> my car still has... Uh, crank windows, no cup holders, no power steering, and I still love my little my little Civic. And so now I'm driving this 99 Honda CRV, power steering, power windows, cup holders, armrests, captain's chair. I'm living the life. I'm thinking this is fantastic. Look at this. Now again, I have the money. I can go out and buy myself a new car, but will I? No, never. And so, you know, so I, I dick around with this car and I do some tires on and brakes and, you know, minor minor stuff. And so recently, um, and I'm a big music fan, so recently the um, stereo that her, and again, it was her daughter's college vehicle, so she put in like a really nice aftermarket Kenwood AM, FM CD player, and so, and all the speakers and the kicker, and it's got like some really good sound in this car, and so the radio starts to crap out. Now, I misfix it. I don't want to ever have to go and buy anything. I will take it apart and figure out what's going on with this thing. And so I order, a friend of mine, I don't have internet or anything, a friend of mine orders the little tools to get the thing out of the, the chassis, out of the dash. I get in there, I get it out, and I take it all apart. Now again, it's probably dated 2000 maybe, you know, so it's probably like almost 19 years old, this, this stereo, that it's gotten its life out of, but I'm determined I'm gonna fix this thing. And so I take it apart and I find out there's no working mechanism. There's no gears, there's no anything. It's all circuit boards and I'm thinking, all right, I guess I have to suck it up and buy a new stereo because I can't be without. So I go online and I look at the prices and I'm like, I don't want to spend money on this stupid thing. Let me go up to Best Buy, the mall. Now going to the mall for me is like going to another country. 
I don't shop, I don't buy new clothes. It's like a foreign, really a foreign country. So I'm up there and I'm just like gazed. I'm like, what do people do up here? You know, like the food court, what would you eat in the food court? You know? <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm in Best Buy and I'm looking and I find a couple Kenwoods and they're like, you know, $159, $200. I'm thinking, they're a piece of shit. I can tell they're not made the way they used to be because I'm very old school and I believe that nothing's made the way it was even 10 years ago. So I dick around with it and I go, nope, I'm not buying it. And so I head out and I say, that's it. I'm just going to figure it out. I'm going to maybe send it back to Kenwood and have them, re you know, repair it. This is all the process of this, you know, $149 stereo that I could have tomorrow if I like have a friend go through whatever it is, Amazon, um, you know, where they deliver stuff to your house. I don't do that either, so you can see. And I don't own a computer, so it's all of like a big nightmare of like I have to ask a friend to go online and give her my credit card. Thank God I have good friends that, you know, still want to hang out with me. And so, um, and so I'm walking out of Best Buy and I run into a buddy of mine that used to own a coffee shop in um, Orleans that I was really friendly with and we used to do open mic all the time together. And he said, hey kid, what are you doing up here? And I said, I don't know, I had to come up here. I'm looking for a Kenwood. I gotta get a new stereo for my car. He goes, a Kenwood? He goes, I just took a Kenwood out of my car. He says, let's see if it fits. And I, I realized that he lives like 10 minutes, not even five minutes from my house. So that night I drive home from Hyannis and I call him, I say, Bill, I'm going to stop by. Don't you know, I go to his house, it's brand new, in the box, with the, the chassis, the harness, everything. The next morning I get up, I plug it in, boom, I'm done. So it's no coincidence <laughs> that I went to Best Buy to maybe buy a new stereo, and then I get one for free, just like I did the car. Okay, let's welcome to the stage, Matt Cecil. Matt, yes. All right, I just, like, literally in the last three seconds just decided to ch change which story I was telling, so. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, so, uh, in the, the 60s, my dad graduated from college. He got, uh, as a college graduation present, uh, uh, an acre of land in a little town in Vermont that had a little tiny ski area with one lift and four trails. It was kind of on its way up. Um, very cheap at the time, though. I think my grandfather got it for like 100 bucks or something like that. Uh, the town was, uh, the name is Killington, a little <laughs> ski area. Um, and so all through it, so he built a house there, he and his buddies, on the weekend. So he's 22 years old, he has a ski house. Um, so we all went up there. We, my, my parents actually met up there, even though they went to school together in New Jersey for years. Um, so anyway, so we, we had bond passes. We, did, we skied for free for like 20 years. Uh, we were up there every weekend. We drove from New Jersey up to Vermont every weekend in the station wagon with the simulated wood siding and the whole works. And it was like this whole thing. Every, every cousins, everybody. There was, it fit like 30 people. Um, it was amazing. So what, what people might not know is in the 80s, in 1980, when they had the Olympics in Lake Placid, um, Killington built a whole new area of the ski area uh, called Bear Mountain, specifically for the Olympic team to train. One trail is perfect for a downhill, the other one, wildfire, was perfect for a slalom and GS and everything else. So what they would do is they would fly the teams back and forth um, by helicopter from Lake Placid to Killington, so they had their own private training facility, basically. Um, so what happened was, we didn't have any television at the time or anything like that, 
Um, so what we would do at night was when the teams would come in, we would actually go up to the ski area and meet the helicopters as they came in and see all the Olympic athletes and stuff like that, which at the time they were like celebrities. We're talking about like Phil and Steve Mayer, the, the Mayer brothers and like all these other people. And it was like crazy. So um, it, there's all these pictures of like us with all these Olympic athletes and stuff that no one recognizes anymore, right? So um, there's uh, this one picture of Phil Mayer signing uh, uh, an autograph, and he's kind of like he's kind of like signing it like this, but he's kind of got like a weird grin on his face. And behind him, this is before cell phones or anything like that, is my mom. Like, you know, like like he has no idea she's there, but it looks like you can't see her hand. So he's kind of like, and it looks like we always joke that looked like she was pinching his ass. And so he's kind of like he's like. And she's right behind him. So for years, so it's like, and my mom loved this picture. And it's like on the mantle. And like, so every year she's always like, oh, he's so handsome. And they're, you know, like amazing. So the other thing that happened, I'm not sure if you remember this, but during the 1980 Olympics, there was like this hockey game. Um, and we played the Russians, I think. So we didn't have a TV again, so we went up to uh, the mountain, to Killington. Uh, there's all these lodges up there. And we used to just go to bars to watch football games and stuff like that. We just did it all growing up. I, I didn't think it was weird. But um, so anyway, so we go to this, this, uh, this whole thing where the, all the Olympic teams are staying. So basically, we're sitting in a bar with like the rest of the entire Olympic teams watching the US play Russia in this hockey game. Unbelievable. So the kids, I have like no almost, I'm, I'm pretty small at that point. I have no idea what's going on. So my brother and I go downstairs and play like in the arcade or whatever. So we're kind of gone for a while. My parents can't find my brother after a while. And so they go down. He's playing ping pong down in the, in the arcade with this guy. And my mom looks over, and it's goddamn Phil Mayer, <laughs> right? And he's no idea who it is. You know, he's like, oh, he's just a super nice guy. He's just playing ping pong with me, whatever. So, so like, there's all these experiences around the Olympics. We never even went to the Olympics. We just, like, watched them come in on helicopters and watched them fly away. It was very exciting. Um, so anyway, so years later, um, and I, I told some stories about living in Alaska in the past. We lived in Alaska for a very long time. And so what we, we used to do with my, um, both sets of my wife and I's parents, we used to meet kind of like out west or in the Midwest somewhere like so that we could kind of both fly and meet there. So one time my parents got a friend of theirs house in, um, in, in Deer Valley in uh, Salt Lake. So the Deer Valley, beautiful ski area, um, a lot of celebrities there and stuff. One time I was skiing and John Denver stopped next to me and he's like, woo! And I was like, it doesn't get much more Colorado than that, <laughs> even though it wasn't even Colorado. So um, my brother is there, too, and we're all staying there. And this is like, I mean, this is like 10 years ago, not that long ago. So my brother goes to the bathroom in the lodge, and sure as shit, in the urinal next to him is goddamn Phil Mayer. Like, I'm not even kidding. He's one of the ambassadors for Deer Valley. So he has, like, his little Deer Valley jacket on and stuff like that. Um, and so my brother looks over, and he's like, holy shit. And so he goes, you know, this is going to, they're peeing, so this is weird. But he's like, you know, this is going to sound weird, but, like, we played ping pong together in 1980. And, and he kind of looks at him, and he's like, whatever, kid. So... And so, like, he goes through this whole thing, and so he ends up chatting with Phil for a little while in the bathroom, which is weird on its own. And so he comes out, um, you know, and he just kind of, my brother just kind of smiles and sits down at the table. We're all sitting there. Um, and so, lo and behold, out from the bathroom walks Phil Mayer. And he stops at the table. He kind of stops. He looks at my mom, and he goes, Karen? <laughs> he goes, 
I have not seen you since the 80 Olympics. How are you doing? And my mom was like, <laughs> like, what the hell is going on? And he was like, he was like, no, you, I don't, you don't remember? We used to come over in the helicopters. You guys were there like every night. Like, how could I not remember that? And my mom is like, my mom's like, oh yeah, totally. How have you been? And he's like, he's like, good. I know. I mean, I kind of peaked in the '80s a little bit, but um, I've been, I've been doing really well. So, so he kind of walks away, and my mom was like, that was a weird coincidence, don't you think? Please bring to the stage Alex J. All right, true story. Neither sad nor happy, um, true story. So let's go back, 1987, New York City. It was the summer, I remember this because it was extremely hot that summer. I was living in Connecticut at the time and I was to meet a friend of mine, a good friend of mine. We had tickets for Liza Minnelli, Carnegie Hall. Um, called her the night before, told her I'd be taking the train in, and for whatever reason, I decided to wear shorts that day. That was unusual for me because I never wore shorts, but I do remember the heat of that day. This is all pre-cell phone. So I get into the city as I normally did through Grand Central, took the subway uptown. She was living up on the Upper West Side at the time. So I go up there and I knock on the door, nothing. I knock on the door again, nothing. I'm like, huh, that's weird. Um, again, pre-cell phones didn't really. So I'm, I went downstairs and decided to, you know, go to a payphone, <laughs> fish in the pocket for the quarters, and tried calling, there was no answer. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, maybe she got called to work, maybe something happens, maybe whatever. I spent the whole day that day in New York um, trying to reach her and never successfully. So it was getting time for the concert. So I went to a restaurant I used to work in. I had brought a bag to change into this clothes. Again, Carnegie Hall, so I had some dress up clothes. And so I'm outside Carnegie Hall and I'm waiting and I'm looking and waiting hopefully thinking I'm going to see my friend Joanne at this concert, right? We, she wanted to go. It's Liza Minnelli, right? Her comeback concert. So <laughs> she hates that term, I'm sure. <laughs> um, no Joanne. So I go in, I go up to my seat. Now, we bought tickets separately because the concert was sold out. So I didn't know. She didn't have the seat next to me. So I didn't know if she was at that concert. So the show opens, Liza Minnelli, spectacular. You know, every number I'm looking, trying to see in between the lights, do I see her, do I not? Um, didn't see her, intermission, I'm down in the lobby looking, what the heck? Tried to phone again, nothing. I would come to find out that my, jo my friend Joanne died that weekend. She died the night before of a heart attack. We didn't find that out until a couple days later when I finally, we got a friend to go open her apartment. Let's jump ahead, 30 years later, I'm in Los Angeles, California, Crescent Heights, just at the corner where Crescent meets Santa Monica. I had a friend of mine there too, um, he was a little bit funny um, that day, he was a little bit odd on the phone, he had said he was gonna be somewhere and he wasn't and I happened to be off from a job that I had at that time and you know, I was like, okay, so this is kind of weird. So I go, I drive over, and I'm in Santa Monica there, parked behind his place there, and um, I see his vehicle. I tried the cell phone. He wasn't answering the phone. We had cell phones now, thank God, right? So he's not answering, he's not answering. I go to the door, and I knock on the door. There's no answer. And all of a sudden, 30 years later, I feel 
those familiar panic feelings. I've been here before, I've done this before, what's going on, what do I do, that frozen panic that you get. So I sat down on the steps outside the house, contemplating what I'm gonna do, cell phone in the hand, and I kid you not, in West Hollywood, driving down Crescent Heights, a convertible, playing Liza Minnelli, New York, New York. I knew what to do in that moment. Ron didn't make it, he took his own life. Me being there in those two places, was that a coincidence or not? Thank you. Okay, let's rev it back up for Jean Ledoux. So I met Ruth uh, for the first time when she came to the facility where I was working. And uh, the first thing she said to me was, get the hell out of my room. <laughs> I was the chaplain at the time. She was feeling very stressed about uh, her diagnosis and didn't want anything to do with me, which is fine. About a week later, her daughter came to my office and said, my mother wants you to come down and see her. I said, are you sure she wants me to come? <laughs> yep, she wants you to come. So I go down and uh, Ruth is sitting up in the bed and she looks at me and she says, okay, I've got some questions for you. I said, okay, let them let go. Okay, so do you believe in God, she says to me? And what about hell and what about heaven? And you know, I don't think this dying thing is a really good idea, so I want you to tell me how I can make it stop. <laughs> yeah, these are not unusual questions, but you know, I have some pretty comfortable answers. Mostly I say, I don't know, I, I don't know. What do you think? So after about 15 minutes, she said to me, you're just no help at all. You can leave, you could just go. So again, I'm dismissed. A Couple more days roll by, her daughter comes back down to my office and says, my mother wants to see you. And I'm like, oh, this ought to be good. So I go in and Ruth says to me, just sit down. I said, okay. She says, you're gonna think I'm crazy, but I have a story to tell you. I said, okay. She says, I'm not a religious woman. I don't go to church. I don't wanna talk about God, but I want you to know I have prayer books. I like prayer books and I always take prayer books everywhere I go. When I travel, I got them all the time. 10 years ago, my father died. And when he died, he was living in California with his second wife. I'm on the airplane and I'm writing what I wanna say at my father's funeral. But when I get there, my stepmother says, you're not saying anything. Sit down and be quiet. So I took those papers and I folded them up and I stuck them in my prayer book and I did as I was told and I came back. Now, she says, yesterday, we're sitting in the room all nice and quiet and there's a knock on the closet door. Don't think I'm crazy, there was a knock. And I said to my daughter, open the door, somebody's in there. My daughter looks at me. She went over and she opened the door and my father came out of the closet. <laughs> Didn't mean the same thing to her. So she says he came out and he walked over and he said, Ruth, calm down, everything's gonna be okay. I'm here to visit. So she says to me, um, he tells me that he wants me to read him the words that I wrote for his funeral. 
Now I'm looking at my daughter going, what the heck? This is creepy. Can you see him? And she says, no. <laughs> but I tell her, go in the closet, look in the bags. And sure enough, in the closet, in the bags, was a prayer book. It was the same prayer book. You think that's a coincidence? So she takes out the paper and she reads to her father, who she can see, everything that she wanted to say at his funeral. He told her how lovely it was. He stayed all afternoon. And when it was time for him to leave, he said, now Ruth, I want you to understand something. We're not gonna talk about God and heaven and hell and all that, but when it's time for you to leave this planet, I'm coming. I'm gonna take you by the hand and I'm gonna take you to what's next. Oh, and by the way, on that day, you remember Dr. Maria, our old family doctor? She's gonna be here. She's gonna come and she's gonna be sitting at the bedside when it's your time to leave. And the birds are going to be singing. She looks at me and she goes, what do you think about that? I said, well, I said, you know, I think that we're given gifts to help us at different times in our life. And I think this was a gift that was given to you. I said, how do you feel now? And she goes, I'm not even worried about dying. Everything's gonna be okay. My father's coming to get me. About a week later, it was her time to move on. So I'm down in the room, I'm sitting with her daughter, we're telling stories about her life while she's slowly diminishing and her breathing is changing. The daughter says, I need to open the window, it's hot in here, cranks open the window. And after a couple of minutes, a woman comes to the door and says, can I come in? And I said, sure, come on. And she comes and she goes, hi, I'm Dr. Ruth, I, I'm Dr. Maria. And I looked at her and I said, really? And she said, oh yeah, I'm an old family friend. She hugs the daughter, she sits down by the bed, she takes Ruth by the hand, and as that woman is breathing her last breath, the birds outside were singing, and Dr. Ruth, Dr. Maria was sitting at her side. And I believe her father came, took her by the hand. No coincidence. Could we bring, bring to the stage Kristen Knowles, please. I say that I'm a Cape Codder by heritage, but I was actually born in Nashua, New Hampshire, where my father was a high school teacher, my mother was a nurse. I used to go to Hollis, New Hampshire. <clears throat> that was my favorite place. Um, because there were apples there, there were orchards. I could smell them as we drove the 20 minutes from Nashua, which I refer to as the mall, mall culture capital of southern New Hampshire. Um, so driving to Hollis was always a welcome respite. And um, my favorite, favorite thing about living in New Hampshire was the fall and the pumpkins and the smell of the apples my favorite being the Macintosh. So um, as I got older, um, in my 20s, I read a book called The Mists of Avalon. And in that book, um, which is about the legends of King Arthur as told through the eyes of the pagan women of that period, um, there is a mystical isle called Avalon, which literally means apple land, um, which was the home of the pagan priestesses and healers of that period. And um, I came to learn uh, that the pentagram 
is said to be from the center of the apple. When you cut it across the middle that way, it's a five-pointed star. And I love that. And all of those images really made a huge impact on me. Um, so I started researching it further because I was brought up Roman Catholic. And what happened in that book was essentially that the pagans were driven down, oppressed, and uh, the Roman Empire was trying to impose Christianity on everyone. So it was really interesting to me because the image of the apple, to me, was so wondrous. And we give our teachers apples because it means wisdom. And we eat an apple a day because it means health, right? But the apple in the Garden of Eden was a symbol of temptation. It was the reason for our downfall when we got kicked out of the garden because Eve couldn't keep from eating it. So that was also amazing to me because at the time I was struggling with an eating disorder. And I read a book by a woman named Kim Chernin called Reinventing Eve. And in this book, she talks about that very thing that our desire and our, um, our hunger for knowledge, for longevity, for all the wonders of the world, as much as they are a temptation, um, to deny ourselves those things is um, you know, almost like self-abusive. Um, and so that also made an incredible impression upon me because um, you know, I always thought like, okay, I'm brought up Roman Catholic and I have to say this prayer all the time, which is the Our Father, but like something's missing here, you know? And I thought, it's, it's the goddess, right? It's the Our Mother, it's the duality of male and female, the, the balance of all that is. And so that, that was something that um, spiritually really moved me. So fast forward, I marry my husband, um, we have a house, we built, and before we ever moved in, the first thing I did was plant a Macintosh apple tree in the front yard. And then there were more after that. And um, the next thing that happened is that um, we adopted two children from Kazakhstan. More about that later. So the next thing that happened is my husband had his midlife crisis. And after the inevitable existential futility period, he discovered a new oddball hobby, which was growing fruits. Um, and uh, it's essentially called permaculture. It's uh, perennial foods. We turned our lawn essentially into a giant garden. And now we have chickens and apples and peaches and raspberries and this giant perennial food farm. So, um, so anyway, then he went to a design course where he learned how to graft. And then that became his obsession. He spends a lot of time with the University of YouTube. And <laughs> now we have like all these rare heirloom varieties and weird grafts, like tiny seedlings all over our yard of apples. So anyway, here's, okay, so when we adopted our kids, um, we had to go to Kazakhstan 
Um, so this was like, this all kind of happened concurrently. And so we were there in the month of February. This is basically central Siberia where we were. Um, it's like 10 below on a sunny day at noon. And um, we would visit them for three hours a day and then we were basically stuck in the confines of our hotel room. So um, we, the only other people in the hotel were evangelicals from Alabama who were also there to adopt and we had zero to say to each other for a month. <laughs> So, so anyway, um, so then, so they, then they make you leave the country for three weeks for this waiting period and then you come back three weeks later. When we came back, we flew into the city named Almaty. And Almaty is the southernmost city in Kazakhstan, the former capital. And um, it's named Almaty because it's the city of apples. That's what the word literally means. There are famous golden apples that are apparently huge that um, are wild and grow in the Tian Shan Mountains that ring the city. So <clears throat> um, that was just amazing to me and I started looking back on the trajectory of my life and the way that apples have played such a significant part in defining who I've become and the way that I look at the world, as odd as that may seem. But that wasn't the end of the story. So, um, about, I don't know how many years later, I was uh, Christmas shopping online and I was looking for books for the kids. And um, I saw this book that was out of print and the title just caught my eye and it said, Apples are from Kazakhstan. And I said, wow. And so I read it and the genomic DNA of all apples in the world comes from those very apples in the Tian Shan Mountains outside of Almaty. Coincidence? I think not. Tom Marquis. Tom Marquis. Welcome, Tom, to the stage. My story, when I was about uh, 15 years old and started buying CDs, because uh, that's around the time they came out, they were new, my first CD was Salt and Pepper, uh, titled Assault with a Deadly Pepper, uh, a, cl uh, a real classic. But uh, my second CD was uh, Two Live Crew, uh, as nasty as they want to be. And uh, my favorite song was Me So Horny, uh, I would uh, play that CD for hours and hours in my room. Uh, you know, I just love the swear words and dirty, I mean, really filthy lyrics. But um, what 15-year-old wouldn't love those, right? And obviously, I was playing it pretty loud. I'm sure my mom could hear this constantly. But uh, so in one of these particular listening sessions, uh, my mom comes, opens my door right up, comes in the doorway, and uh, I don't remember her knocking on the door, so she definitely had a plan. She was up to something. And uh, you know, I was so like surprised and then nervous, and she's asking about my laundry, and I'm just trying to quickly get her out of the room, because I know a particular lyric coming up. I don't want her to hear which was something like, he will, he will be disgusted when he sees your P word busted. It's just filthy, gross. So I was like, oh, 
So I'm like, well, maybe if I can just, I'll respond loud enough and talk over this line as it comes up. And sure enough, to try to get her out of the room, and sure enough, I just yell back, yes, mom, you can fold my pussy. I mean, my pants, you can fold my pants. Thank you. Pat, the tension mounts. Medina, Okay, so um, I came in prepared to do this whole story, and then I was getting kind of like a little chickened out, and then another story appeared, because I love telling stories anyway. Everything I say is a whole big story. So let me just start by saying I was not going to talk about spirituality at all, and I'm not going to talk about crashing cars. Um, so yeah, a lot of you people know me, and I wouldn't talk about crashing. So. I was sitting at home, it was February perhaps, really destitute, middle of winter, here in Provincetown, oh my God. You know, I'm sitting with a friend, she came over, oh, I have to leave soon, she said, because you know, black ice. So we had a couple of beers, you know, and I thought, oh, it's gotta get better than this shit. You know, mind you, I've been in Provincetown now 30 years, but this was about 20 years ago, and I was already, oh, it's got to get better than this shit. So, but we're saying goodbye, and my phone rings. I'm like, you know, I just have no fun in life. So I go over to the phone. It was plugged into the wall at the time, of course, and I pick it up. Hello. And my friend says, hi, what are you doing? And I thought, I'm sitting here thinking, it's got to get better than this shit. There's got to be some way for a girl to have fun. Oh, she said, listen, I have an idea. Melissa and I, we're going to put on a show. And we want you to come and do this show. So now, I mean, the stage is not really where I was, you know, comfortable. I'm not now either, by the way. Um, so. I said, you're going to do a show? And they were like, you know, producers. They were producers, we're going to do a show. It's going to be a review. We're going to do like, you know, we're going to show that butch lesbian women can get dressed up glamorously <laughs> and lip sync just as well as the drag queens in Provincetown. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, well, I was just complaining that there's no fun. Yes, yes, I'll do it, I'll do it. She was like, really? I said, yeah. She said, you know, we're going to make you wear heels. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I don't know if I can walk in heels. Sure you can, but you have to wear a dress also. You got to be like glamorous and wear a dress. And I thought, oh, jeez, I just want to, you know, drive my trolley and just do what I do in my sneakers and my jeans for the rest of my life. What do you tell? I said, yes, okay, because I was desperate to have fun. <laughs> So I don't know if you, any of you know Susan Wasson and Melissa Becker. They, and they used to live in town here, and they were involved with Good Sense and everything. But they went off to Brewster. But while they were here, this was happening. <laughs> this was happening. They were doing reviews. They started off, you know, lightweight in the Casas uh, benefits, and they did dress up and everything that I went to. But then they wanted to raise money for our library that was being restored. And this was the benefit that we were gonna do. And I said, hey, this is a great cause. I will show leg, 
okay? <laughs> so they said, okay, well, we're, we're all getting together. We have a lot of rehearsing to do. We're gonna get together at the old community center, the stinky gym downstairs. <laughs> this, I'm like, yes, fun, let's do it. So we get together the following week and they brought the wardrobe. So they have the dresses with the strapless and then my other friend lent me a dress and it's like cut up to here with the, only on one shoulder with the ruffles and it's got the sequins and it's, you know, one that you kind of put in like this. And I said, if you guys want me to do this, I gotta bring these dresses home and practice all these moves that you want me to make, make sure nothing comes out anywhere. Okay, so I did that. Well, I'll tell you, the following, well, this had, I started off saying it was in February. The show was actually gonna be in February. So in February, we get into the surf club and I'm dying. I've never been on stage before that. And we get there and I have the costumes ready and my uh, beauty stylist comes in, does full face makeup. They got me in a long blonde wig. I got makeup, I got glitter on my arms. They have red nail polish, they look like M&Ms, but red <laughs> nail polish. I had all kinds of jewelry on and everything. And we get out there and we do, I'm so excited. But I'm just lip singing. I mean, I really want to sing, you know, I want to grab the mic and everything. But we did this great, great show. Fast forward to tonight. <laughs> what I gotta say is I came in that door and I thought, well, maybe I'll tell the story. I had a spooky story of coincidences planned. The man at the door said to me, you gonna tell a story? I wrote my name down, yes I am. Oh. So I sit down, I said, there's an empty table. My friend Sandy and I, we sit down. Introduce me to the two gals that are sitting there at the table Margie turns around and says to me, oh, are you Pat Medina? And I said, Medina. She says, do you know Susan Wasson? And I said, I do. She says, I'm her friend. They had me doing the reviews up in Brewster. She went, to, she went and was on the stage doing shows with Susan Wasson and Melissa Becker, and we just happened to be here tonight sitting at the same table, never having met each other before. All right, we've got two more storytellers. Let's call our next to the stage a quintessential year-rounder, Lisa Brown. Woo! So I was 30s, my mid-30s in uh, mid-90s. And I was, I was trying to, I was going through maybe my second midlife crisis. Um, and I was a restaurant owner, like probably everybody who's year-round has either worked in a restaurant or thought that they could own one for a minute. <laughs> and, and uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and I was trying to make a decision. I was trying to make a leap into another job. I teach at the high school at Nauset now. And, and I was trying to make a decision about whether I should be a child psychologist or a high school teacher. Actually, I thought I was going to be a college teacher at first, but then I sort of switched to high school. And 
this was coinciding quite nicely, coincidentally, with my midlife crisis. And so a friend of mine said, well, why don't you do this therapy institute that she had just come back from that was boku bucks, really, really expensive. Um, and it was, uh, it was a kind of therapy institute that was in Northern California. And they, there was all these different modalities of therapy and they would, <clears throat> they would break you down. There was like perineedle, natal, noodle stuff and <laughs> transactional analysis and I don't know, any, all this stuff that they did. And, and I paid a lot of money to do this, right? And you had to write a 10-page paper saying who you were and how effed up you were and, and like what, you, what were the roots of all your problems. And I mean, I'm like, well, aren't you guys supposed to figure that out? But, and then they pair you up with somebody. In this therapy institute, you get this little cabin way out in Northern California. And they pair you up very specifically with somebody who's either going to push all your buttons and get you right into your shit or somebody who's just gonna stroke you and love you to death. Either way, depending on how, you know, screwed up you were. So, so that was all good. So I paid a lot of money and wrote a big long story just to get into this place, right? So my friend and I are driving across the country and, you know, if any of you have driven in Northern California, we noticed, you know, back in San Francisco, there's this white van with this kind of teenage looking kid in it who we were sort of tandeming and we were driving and he was driving. We had driven all the way across the country to go to this place. And he kept sort of swerving in and out of traffic and blah, blah, blah. And we're about 40 minutes away from this therapy institute and we're going through Napa wine, you know, country. and, it, and the road goes like this and you can see forever and it's just beautiful there. And way up and up ahead, there's this car that's had broken down that's on the side of the road. And as we're getting closer, this van, this kid who's driving this van is sort of weaving in and out and everything and we're trying to get away from him. And then a truck pulls up. I can see over the next rise, a truck is pulled up over next to this car on the breakdown lane. This guy's gotten out and there are people and they're in the back of this little car that's broken down and they've got the trunk open and they're bending over into the trunk, trying to get the tire or something out of the trunk. And right in front of our eyes, the van swerves and smashes right in the back of this little car. And right in front of me, the woman's torso goes flying out in front of the road. Well, I was in the shit now. I'm not kidding. I mean, it was, and, and I had just quit smoking cigarettes too. <laughs> anyway, it was a terrible thing to see. And it was like PTSD immediately. And you know, this was before cell phones or anything. And we're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And we look back and other people are stopping. And my friend Pat's like, should I stop? I'm like, no, just go, just go. Cause what we had just seen was horrible, just horrible. So this was back in the day of call boxes. So there was a call box about a quarter of a mile up. So we pull over and I call it in like this because it was just, it was a terrible thing to see. We call it in and they, I give my name and da 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 da, where we're going. We're going to Pocket Ranch Institute, blah, 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 up in Geyserville. We get up to Pocket Ranch 
and you know, I'm like this. And my friend Pat's like, okay, see you later. She leaves and I'm about to go into this 28 day intensive therapy experience with this other person that I get partnered with in this little cabin and all these therapists and all these other people. So I do my intake and I go and I get into the cabin and there's a double bed and a single bed and I'm the first one there. Which one do I pick? No, no I picked the single. I had my teddy bear, I picked the single bed. And I start waiting for the person that they've paired me up for. You know, I'm just waiting for them to come. And I wait, and I wait. And everybody else gets their partners. And then dinner bell rings and I go and I wait. And the director comes up to me and she says, I'm really sorry to tell you, but the person that you saw killed on the highway today was meant to be your partner. Oh my God. Oh my God. So two days go by and of course I'm alone in my cabin and so it's all very special for me. But two days go by and the parents come and the cops come. They, I have to do a deposition because I was the last person to see this person alive. And <clears throat> actually both of them died, they were killed instantly. The teenage boy lived. So I do my deposition there and the parents are there and they gave me the ring off of her finger and they said, we want you to have this because you probably would have been friends. And just so you know, this is Bette Midler's niece. <gasps> wow, that's my coincidence, thank you. Kate Wallace Rogers. Okay, so just a, one little quick uh, mention of a coincidence. Um, uh, I happen to know Lisa and Deirdre, and um, uh, I wore uh, an earring made by Deirdre. Just happened to. Anyway, okay, coincidence. Uh, all right. So, I only have one hole. Please don't tell me I'm missing the other one. Okay. Anyway, I have other holes. So. All right. Okay. Did you start the time already? I'm so sorry. Okay. So, when I was about 15, um, I was surprisingly enough uh, an adolescent who was self-conscious, and um, I had uh, I had really bushy eyebrows. I had like almost a monobrow, and um, for some reason, like anyway, it, I don't anymore. But um, I complained to my mother. I was like, "Mom, what, what's the story? You don't have a monobrow." I don't, like, why do I have this stupid, you know, bushy eyebrows? And really, it was the time of Brooke Shields and Meryl Hemingway, so I kind of liked it, but I felt like, you know, I should complain because I was the only one who had this. And um, so then uh, years go by, and um, my, um, my mom... Um, my mom was in this acting and singing group, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan Society. And um, 
so I, I loved Gilbert and Sullivan. I did all sorts of Gilbert and Sullivan as much as I could. I went to every rehearsal. I had lots of friends um, in this group, and I f they felt like family to me. I was just like, I love this so much. I wanted to do it more than I wanted to do all sorts of cool teenage things. I just wanted to go to the Gilbert and Sullivan you know, plays. So anyway, um, uh, sadly, my mother died when I was 23. <clears throat> and um, and all these wonderful people showed up for me, all these uh, people in this group that I'd known my whole life. And we used to have the cast party, and, and that was really great. So um, very supportive. And my brother and I ended up joining this group. He's an actor, and uh, we joined the backstage, and we had so much fun with these people. And we always went out after... Uh, after rehearsals uh, or building the sets and, um, you know, this local watering hole. And um, this guy came up to me and he said, um, you know, a few drinks in. Everybody was a big drinker then. Um, and he said, um, you know, your mother and I had an affair. And I was like, whatever the equivalent of what the fuck, you know, <laughs> back in 1985. And I was just, and I was also like, yeah, I knew, but whatever. And I just walked away and I didn't talk to him for like 15 years. I'd known him my whole life. And I was just like, okay. And um, I'd always had this weird feeling about him. Like I knew all his friends. They all sang with my mother in the men's rooms of these university clubs that they would, they would um, sing because the acoustics were great. I don't know, that's what they always said. So um, anyway. So uh, I'm in this group, my mother's died, 15 years pass, and um, it's the 90th, uh, no, it's the 75th anniversary of this, of this group. They started in 1924, and they've been around forever. And uh, I went to New York City, I then lived you know, outside of Boston, and I went back home to, um, to go to this thing. And uh, I finally felt like ready to talk to this guy about what he had said. And sorry, this keeps getting in my way. Um, and, uh, and he, uh, so we're sitting in the back room again with many drinks in and, and we're talking and, um, and I'm realizing over time that like, I, I don't know, I just, I'm, my my cousin, who's also in this group, is saying, "Well, should we get some of his hair?" Like, so she's in props, and and her sister's in wigs, and so her sister cuts a little hair, and we're gonna like test the hair to see if he's my father or something. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not gonna test, it. but I did keep this little tiny, like, well, it looked like one of those little envelopes that you used to fold and there was stuff inside, this tiny little envelope, <laughs> except it had, it had his hair in it and it said on the outside, pa, question mark? <laughs> That's what my cousin did. So anyway, I had this in my drawer for 15 years and, um, and I was ready to talk to him about it. And I, so it was kind of occurring to me, but I thought, you know, in those days, like a DNA test was like $10,000 or something. Like average people don't get DNA tests. So anyway, I talked to him and it comes up. I'm like, so do you think, 
Oh, I should also say that it's weird that I looked so much like my mother. And for some reason, he looked so much like my father, who was about 11 years older than he was, and the guy I grew up with. And, and so it just was very strange for us to be in the same room together because he looked so much like my father, who was also deceased at this time, and I looked so much my, like my mother. Anyway, so we're starting to talk, and it's, it's getting a little easier. And I say, well, is there any, any reason that you would ever, you know, think, um, you know, maybe they're related? And, and he said, no, no, uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. Except your mom did tell me one time you asked her about your eyebrows. <laughs> and I was looking across the table at him like, what? And here he is with these big, bushy eyebrows. And so I just, whoa, okay, that's really weird. But, you know, neither of us think there's anything going on. So we let another 15 years pass. And it's now the 90th anniversary of this group. I go back to the city. I go see these wonderful people who are my family. I just love them so much. And... Um, I'm dating a woman at this time whose best friend's father was one of these guys that my mom used to sing with in the, in the bathroom. And uh, so I had met her when I was 15, but now you know she came out at 16 and I came out at 46. And so we've gotten together. And so we're dating and she's adopted and she uh, asks me if I think she should go and pursue like who her parents are. And I'm like, of course. I mean, God, I'd want to know. Wouldn't you want to know? Well, I don't know. It's like, uh, okay, I might be the daughter of this guy. <laughs> I'll find out. And she happens to know him. So I'll find out if you find out. So she hires this detective and lo and behold, her parents aren't any longer alive, but she has this incredible sister out in Santa Barbara, and they become very close. It's a wonderful thing. Now I have to follow up. So I ask this man, who uh, might be my father, I ask him, you know, ah, I'm ready. Do you think we could do this? And he says, okay. So, um, he goes to, he lives in New York, and he goes to Philadelphia. He, he has five children, and he goes to Philadelphia where his son Cameron lives, and he goes to the Walgreens, and he gets a DNA kit. Because you can't do this in New York City. It's not admissible as palimony evidence or whatever in New York City. So he has to go to Philadelphia. So he gets this kit, and he does a swab in his cheek, and he puts it in an envelope, and he... Um, sends it to me with like a hundred dollar bill woven into it, real <laughs> mysterious like. And so I get that in my post office box, I swab my cheek, I take it to the postmistress, she sends it off. And three weeks later, six weeks, I can't remember exactly, it comes back 99.999% sure that this man is my father. <laughs> so now I have Okay, so I, I made a wish. I'm really good at, at manifesting. I made a wish that uh, my, I would have a bigger family. Now I have six older brothers and an older sister. 
And then I also had a wish that um, um, I would get a, a, a sister. It was like, you can't just get a sister, but I got a sister. And then I had another wish that my two children would know their grandparents. And now they know their 96-year-old father who still has a full-time job in New York City on a double-decker bus doing the uh, history tour of New York City. And he's pretty hot shit, so. Coincidence? I don't know. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.